1: Shalom from Jerusalem. This is Watchmen Talk, a series of conversations with Israeli experts and practitioners in military affairs, intelligence, politics, government, and diplomacy. And indeed, our guest for a second conversation is veteran diplomat Ambassador Ronnie Leshnoyar. Thank you again for coming. Shalom again. And um, in our first conversation, Um, We uh, surveyed your career, which uh, took you to the research department of the foreign ministry handling Palestinian affairs just when the Madrid process started to uh, die down. And the Oslo process uh, all of a sudden sprang, not out of it, but perhaps uh, detouring it, derailing it. And you were there. Uh, present at the creation? Uh, how did it come about? And one should mention that in 1992, the Likud government was replaced by the uh, Labour government uh, of Itzhak Rabin as prime minister and minister of defence, and Shimon Peres as foreign minister. Ronnie? Well, look,
0: I, 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 I was not part of the Oslo gang, but I was there in the margins. For example, uh, the first time that uh, Terry larsen the Norwegian, Norwegian mediator. mediator uh, came to the foreign ministry. Uh, we were invited to meet with him. He was then the head of FAFO, which was a Norwegian uh, NGO or think tank. Uh, and he spoke about Israel-Palestinian uh, uh, affairs. And uh, two gentlemen, Israeli gentlemen, who escorted him, I knew personally. Uh, my university teacher, Yair Hirschfeld, and uh, his colleague and my friend, Uh, Ron Pundek, who studied with me in the university. And who served in the Mossad for a while. Right, Uh, unfortunately passed away uh, uh, several years ago. Uh, So that was my first encounter with the Oslo uh, 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 situation and later in different uh, uh, other uh, uh, ways in Israel and and, uh, uh, abroad.
1: Do you believe that the Oslo process was doomed to fail? Do you think um, at uh, some juncture it could have been handled better? I think that the Oslo process was a huge success.
0: I have to say that it's in the eyes of the beholder and you have to define success. But I think that, that's my opinion, the Oslo process transformed the Palestinian issue from a global issue into a local issue. From something which existed outside Israel, in Arab countries and beyond, into an Israel-West Bank-Gaza situation. And look, you look back thirty years uh, and you look thirty years uh, back, and you see how it narrowed down to uh, a disagreement between
1: Israel and the Palestinian uh, Authority. In simple terms, <laughs> uh, the deal that that Yitzhak Rabin, who was um, skeptical. Uh, suspicious of Yasser Arafat for good reason, Um, a military man by training, but also an excellent ambassador to Washington in the late 60s and early 70s, and of course, prime minister, defense minister, chief of staff of the IDF. The, The deal, as Rabin saw it, was that in exchange of giving Arafat and uh, his uh, colleagues from Tunis, from outside the territories, control of certain responsibilities and jurisdictions in the territories, Arafat will impose his authority on all Palestinians residing in these territories and will prevent further terror act acts against Israel. Rabin himself, personally, never spoke about a future Palestinian state, even though it was obvious that it could get to that. And Arafat did not really fulfill
0: his part of the deal. Look, I don't see myself as, a, as, a, as an expert on the Oslo process. Uh, uh, certainly not to determine whether it was right or wrong, success or, uh, or failure. I, as I said before, I think that it was a huge success for Israel uh, in the sense that it minimized the conflict and you see what is going on today. Um, but I think that uh, there are two sides to this uh, uh, story. It is true that uh, uh, Arafat was an impossible partner, but it is also true that Israel was not an easy partner uh, uh, as well. The fact is that as long as you have a process... Call it Oslo, call it something different. There is less international pressure on Israel, and when in the in the in the absence of such a process, there is much more focus and pressure on uh, on Israel. Therefore, always throughout my career, certainly as a senior diplomat, our recommendation to the principals, to the politicians, was: we need
1: a process. Now, up until 1948, when Israel was established. It was what we would call now in our terms an Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Then Arab countries invaded Israel and it became an Arab-Israeli rather than a Palestinian-Israeli problem. But after peace with Egypt and then Jordan was signed, yes, there were Syria and Lebanon. And later we see the, the Iran uh, threat and the time there was an Iraqi threat. But right now, it is focused on the Palestinian-Israeli arena. And you say that this is in the best interest of Israel.
0: I think so, yeah. And the fact is that we managed not only to pacify Arab countries, but also transform some of them, even many of them, into allies of, uh, of Israel. It's not only the process or the Israeli-Palestinian issue, it's also the global situation which pushed back.
1: and But, further- but when you were There at the ministry There was still some hope Um, It it started with others and perhaps even outside the foreign ministry in the defense establishment that Tutoring developing Hamas as an alternative the religious part of the Palestinian community would be better for Israel to handle than the national Movement led by the PLO led by Yasser Arafat. This was a mistake. I don't have
0: Any first-hand information about that so I cannot comment on that,
1: but you see now that um, there is a separation between Gaza under Hamas and the Palestinian Authority in charge of the West Bank, but you see how
0: Hamas is tamed and uh, Controlling uh, beautifully for Israel the Gaza Strip. So is it a success? I think so
1: So maybe Israel uh, should hope for
0: Hamas to take over the West Bank too. Israel should hope for what is good for Israel And what is good for Israel is an arrangement with the Palestinians that will satisfy both
1: sides. You were later posted to Geneva uh, uh, taking- So I came back from Washington to Israel after five- We we haven't spoken about Washington. (laughs) Of course. So um,
0: Washington- Five fascinating years. Uh, my first big event in Washington in September 1993 was to go to the White House to the South Lawn and pre- uh, be present at the signing ceremony of the DOP when Paris Robin and The Arafat Declaration of state, principles. Uh, declaration of principles, of course, and then the signing of the of uh, I mean the first contact with the Jordanians and then the the, the diplomatic contact with Arab countries, which started in a way, or continued in Washington with Gulf countries and the uh, and, uh, Maghreb countries. Uh, first contacts with uh, Arab diplomats, which was fascinating.
1: What, what was your uh,
0: position, position? I was the Arabist of the embassy. I, I, in the political section, we were two diplomats. One dealt with Israel-U.S. bilateral relations and I dealt with the U.S., the Arab world, and Israel. This triangle, so I covered uh, uh, um, uh, Situation in Arab countries and 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 uh, American Arab uh, relations, including.
1: And you were in touch with um, American intelligence agencies too, or IADR. Not, not necessarily. In, in I, yeah, right. State
0: Department, State Department, Pentagon, think tanks, uh, and Congress. Uh, the media, Jewish organizations, the whole scope of... The the ambassador was Itamar Rabinovich. So my first ambassador was was my teacher in university, Professor Itamar Rabinovich, which was a pleasure to work with him. And my second ambassador was the late
1: uh, Eli Ben-Elisar, the last two years. This was under Netanyahu. Under Netanyahu. But Rabinovich was uh, both the ambassador and the head of the delegation for talks with Syria. Right,
0: and he, he was a celebrity in Washington, and rightly so. Uh, very popular. Like Bandar bin Sultan on the Saudi side? We didn't have the money of uh, the Saudis, but we had the wisdom of the Jews. Uh, So, uh, uh, Itamar was uh, very popular. Uh, He had an open door in the White House and State Department, and
1: we benefited from his popularity as diplomats. How was what the Americans call the country team? How was that run in the embassy? You also have the defense attache. You have the Mossad representative. Yoram Hessel, I believe, uh, during your time, late Yoram Hessel. And Giora Rom was the military attache. Yoram was the military attache, very popular in the Pentagon. Right. There was harmony because we all
0: appreciated the leadership of the ambassador. And much depends in any diplomatic establishment. Much depends on the... Uh, personality the charisma uh, of the uh, of the sitting ambassador and and Itamar had the charisma and uh, and uh, the academic background uh, I mean he had a direct line to president clinton for example and to Itzhak Rabin and, and Shimon Peres right and his role as the head of the israeli team to the negotiation with syria gave him a huge added uh, uh, value which we all benefited uh,
1: now from um, Professor Ambassador Rabinovich uh, happens uh, to live in the northern suburb of Tel Aviv called Neve Avivim, midpoint between the apartments of Itzhak Rabin and Shimon right. Peres. Right. And the Israeli ambassador to Washington is always in a very delicate position because while he's chosen by the uh, prime minister, who has, of course, uh, overall <laughs> Uh, Control of U.S.-Israeli relations. He is also supposed to report to the minister who happened uh, to be the political rival of Rabin's. Did you uh, notice any any tension between these two ministries? Because you are a foreign ministry employee. Your career depends um, on the pleasure of the minister, but the prime minister uh, is looking over your shoulder, too. Well, there was tension,
0: but I never noticed it. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, uh, again, because it was well known that uh, Itamar is close to uh, Rabin and enjoyed the full uh, confidence of the Prime Minister, uh, then I don't think that it created a real problem. Definitely not for us, the, uh, uh, the diplomats. Uh, his DCM, Shlomo, my friend Shlomo Gur, was closer to Berlin and uh, and uh, and uh, So there was the kind of this. Delicate balance uh, in the embassy that allowed all of us to operate freely uh, and successfully. Did you notice the affinity between Clinton and Rabin when Rabin Absolute, came to town? Absolutely. There was no doubt about it. Clinton admired Rabin and his grief, grief following the assassination of Rabin Rabin was authentic. I was there at the embassy at the ceremony immediately after the assassination of Rabin. Clinton came to the embassy and gave a, an emotional speech, an unbelievable uh, emotional uh, uh, speech, it was, all of us cried. Uh, it was a difficult moment for us as diplomats. Not because it was Rabin, but because an Israeli prime minister, it was a shock for all of us. Uh,
1: and then after the brief interregnum of Paris, there was Netanyahu, who came to town promising uh, to win Israel of American aid, which never happened. Did you notice uh, a different kind of reception? That was not your department, but, but uh, Netanyahu was obviously closer to the Republicans, to Speaker Gingrich, rather than to the Democratic uh, Clinton administration. You have to keep
0: in mind that uh, then in 1996, and Netanyahu was a young uh, politician, a very first time prime minister, not as experienced as he is uh, today. His relationship with the Republicans were less obvious than what they are today. He needed the support of the Clinton administration. So he was less uh, 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 confrontational than what he allowed himself to be uh, later uh, With Obama. Uh, on. And it took him time, it took him time to, uh, to realize that you have to be very careful uh, with uh, the American administration. Uh, uh, but I think he did, he did quite well in his first uh, trips to, uh, 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 to Washington. And look, Israel-U.S. relations are based not on the um, uh, identity of the sitting prime minister or president, but on other things, you know, values, history, pioneering spirit. Interest. Interests. Interests, uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, so even when you have a less friendly president or less friendly prime
1: minister, still the relationship will go on up to a point. So when you move out of Washington, which is obviously the preeminent post in the Israeli foreign uh, service, you move to another post, even when you are, you are the head of the delegation, the, the ambassador. What do you feel? Do you feel that um, uh, you get Geneva or any other place? Do you feel that it is less interesting or because your responsibilities uh, are becoming uh, uh, perhaps bigger, uh, this is a sort of compensation? Well, definitely Washington is
0: the best posting that a career diplomat can uh, hope to get. Uh, I think that it's more uh, appealing to junior diplomats than to senior diplomats, because the kind of uh, networking and experience that you uh, buy in Washington is a gift that diplomacy is giving you for your future career. Uh, and this is what I got when I was there, a mid-level... Uh, uh, diplomat. And your counterparts from both the American... Uh, I carry uh, them with me until this very day. And uh, Absolutely. Uh, most of them, for example, are senior American ambassadors, uh, senior Jewish uh, activists, uh, uh, senior academicians and, and researchers, and so on and so forth. But uh, after Washington, I returned to Israel, I spent four years in the North America division. I was the number two in the division. The number one was Ambassador Yoram Ben Zeheb, my good friend, who later became Ambassador of Israel to Germany. Uh, and that ended my bilateral career in the foreign ministry. And I moved in 2004 from bilateral diplomacy to multilateral diplomacy. And I emphasize that because it, these are
1: two different trades so that's a good um, opening to ask whether there is really a multilateral track uh, because yes uh, you have the organizations themselves with their staffs and with their agendas but isn't the position of various member states in these organizations influenced by their bilateral relations with Israel? So there is definitely
0: uh, um, a clear division between bilateral and multilateral diplomacy, and multilateral multilateral diplomacy is becoming more and more prominent in the world of diplomacy for different reasons. One of them is technology. Uh, The other reason is that governments benefit from uh, delegating some of their responsibilities to multilateral diplomacy uh, 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 multilater- multilateral um, organizations, the UN, uh, uh, the EU, OSCE, the Human Rights Council, OECD, and so on, there are many, and NATO, uh, of course, for different reasons, domestic reasons, it's easier for Europeans to blame the EU for the bad things which are taking place in Europe, and... Because they have they have more money. Uh, those for the EU is a good uh, example. Because they have the tools. The U, the UN is uh, is an example. Uh, so multilateral diplomacy is becoming more and more central in the life of international. So diplomats. so for
1: instance, uh, you're doing parliamentary work, right? You have to build a coalition in order to get a majority uh, when resolutions are are offered. Let's take a country with no diplomatic relations with Israel, Pakistan. Yeah. Uh, what you uh, are really um, referring to is that in Islamabad, they don't really care what their ambassador to the UN um, organization's um, Geneva um, Center does on on a certain resolution if it is not uh, a core interest of the government and if you know how to ask him uh, at least to abstain and not to vote against Israel this is a net plus for Israel.
0: Pakistan is an excellent example of a group of countries which are not really important but they are hugely important in international organizations. I'll give you several examples Pakistan is one of them Cuba is another one Egypt is another one. Brazil is another one. Countries which perhaps we don't have direct interest with them, Pakistan or Cuba, but they play a big role at the UN and other multilateral organizations, which will have and are having a huge impact on Israel's national security. Why? Because they are part of the non-aligned movement? They know to play the game. Their English is not as mine. It's perfect. Their diplomatic skills, we cannot match them. And they have the time to do it because nobody will touch Pakistan or Cuba at the UN, but all of them will touch Israel. So we must learn how to deal with them directly
1: or indirectly. So they come to you too, even though there are no formal relations, if they need your support. Some, is, is there a quick uh, quo? First, none of
0: them needs my support. To begin with, Israel is a dwarf. They don't need me. They have have 130 countries supporting them. They don't need me. I am am a a burden for them. Not an an asset. Not always, but often. But, and some of them will not dare approach me out of the fear that others will see them talking to me. Even if they need favors from me. I have a beautiful story for you. Please. Uh, My ministry asked me to meet... A, 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 politi- a senior politician from a country that don't have diplomatic relations with Israel, because he wanted to learn from Israel experience in a certain multilateral organization. So I met with him, in a in a discreetly in an hotel room, and while I'm talking to him and trying to help him deal with his problems, his ambassador to that multilateral organizations was carrying. Strong speeches against Israel criticizing Israel. So you see the double standard, (laughs) right? Exactly. So we have so the Pakistanis are a good example of diplomats that will be very careful not to approach Israeli diplomats even if they carry official
1: UN responsibilities. They will be very careful. This is, this is on the professional level, but sometimes during the General Assembly right. in New York, their foreign minister will meet an Israeli official, but it that's a higher, a higher level. It happened 20 years ago
0: when the Oslo process was alive and, uh, and kicking, but I don't think that since we had uh,
1: such a meeting with a Pakistani foreign minister. So let's hop Uh, not move directly, but let's hop from Geneva to Brussels. Mm -hmm. In Brussels, you have two important uh, multilateral organizations, the European Union and the um, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Um, And there are two Israeli ambassadors in Brussels. One, of course, um, uh, is uh, credentialed to the Belgian government. The host country. And the other is what you uh, did, so is there any
0: tension between the two? There must be cooperation between the two because Belgium and Luxembourg, mind you, and the ambassador of Belgium is also credited to Luxembourg, are two small but important countries uh, within the EU. And we need, if not the support, then to neutralize them from damaging Israel. And the two, these two countries, forgive me God for saying this, are among the top five Vocal critics of Israel among the 27 EU um, uh, member states. So I needed and I rarely got uh, the support of the Belgian government for for Israel. Most of the time they were critical of Israel until this very day. And you
1: did it directly or through your colleague?
0: Always, Always through my colleague, the ambassador to Belgium. But I had direct engagement with the ambassador of Belgium to the European Union who doesn't name. have to leave home in order to represent his country. Right, unfortunately for him, uh, the the name of the ambassadors of EU member states to the organization is coréper, correspondent uh, uh, permanent uh, in 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 French. Uh, in fact, in many countries they are part of the government and they've ministerial Status. So they were my counterparts. But when it came to lobby the Belgium government, the Belgian parliament, it was my colleague, the ambassador to to Belgium.
1: Now, NATO. um, Relatively recently, the informal status of the Israeli ambassador to the EU, who also um, uh, moonlighted. Um, as his representative, as the country's representative to NATO. This was upgraded, given formal right. status, and you were the first ambassador to NATO. Did that make any difference? It
0: made a huge difference. First, I have to give to give credit to my predecessors, who did a great job in bringing us to the point of upgrading the relationship with the help of the Americans both in NATO and in, uh, in Washington. Uh, I was the first one to present my credentials to the Secretary General of NATO, Stoltenberg, we still there. And we opened an office in, uh, in, uh, in NATO headquarters in Brussels. And we signed an operation, a work plan agreement with uh, uh, NATO, which opened doors f- to, for the expansion of Israel activities with uh, uh, NATO. Uh, uh, and I think that we appreciated it in here in Israel, and they more appreciate it in NATO, because in NATO, they love Israel. They appreciate our uh, um, battlefield experience, our technology, science, uh, etc. So we are welcome guests in, uh, in NATO. And you, you also have uh, a defense representative who usually uh, sits in The Hague. Right, so General uh, Eisenkot, the uh, chief of general staff, decided while I was the ambassador, I met with him, and he decided to move the uh, military attaché from The Hague to Brussels, and that allowed us to
1: expand even further our engagement with NATO. So this uh, defense attaché is also in charge of relations with the Dutch, with rather the Dutch, than being in, in Holland and uh, in with, charge of... With uh, the Dutch, with the Belgians, with the EU, but first and foremost with NATO. You had the problem with Turkey. Uh, trying uh, to put obstacles uh, on the way of Israeli cooperation with NATO. And just when it was about to be solved, lo and behold, Israel gets moved from the European command, EUCOM, to the central command, CENTCOM. So was it all in vain? It didn't make any difference. Uh, Turkey
0: is a major player in NATO. I had fantastic working relationship and personal relationship with the Turkish ambassadors to uh, Uh, to NATO. And it is true that until a certain point of time, NATO blocked much of Israel's activity in the North Atlantic uh, 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 Treaty. Uh, But that's over now. Now, relationship has uh, improved dramatically. I was a guest of the Turks in Turkey, including, by the way, in Antakya, and I visited the synagogue that the leader of the community in Antakya and his wife, Unfortunately, we he passed away, were ad- killed. Uh, but I visited the synagogue, uh, uh, so now relations are good, and uh, there are no uh, uh, obstacles for Israel.
1: The activities in NATO. The Secretary General used to visit. Uh, Schaefer was uh, probably the last. Why uh, didn't Stoltenberg visit Israel? He will come. He will come. It's a matter of time, but and you uh, will see him when he comes. Hopefully, if he invites me, even even though you are now <laughs> out of uh, the uh, the service. Let's first yeah. see that he comes to Israel, and then we'll talk
0: about his schedule. And you are
1: representing uh, Jewish uh, American Jewish. <laughs> I'm doing two
0: things. I, I teach uh, uh, at uh, the Ben Gurion University. I have a course on EU and uh, NATO uh, at the university, and I'm a consultant for the World Jewish Congress.
1: Ambassador Roni Leshnoyar, thank you very much for two informative and enlightening conversations.
0: My pleasure, thank
1: you for inviting me. And this is all we have today for Watchmen Talk. We will be back with another edition. This is TV7 News in Jerusalem.
0: Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or
1: follow us on social media.